Well, good evening, everybody. If you'd open up a Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 7, Deuteronomy the 7th chapter, we're going to be looking at the first couple of verses there on top of the chapter. And we'll actually be in the Old Testament uh, for the entirety of our time this evening. Uh, be working here just kind of in these first few books of the Old Testament, but Deuteronomy chapter 7 will be our first stop. It is great to see everybody tonight. It's been just a beautiful and just glorious day that the Lord has given us, and I hope you've been able to uh, enjoy it, not just in our time together as we've We've worshipped and uh, been in fellowship with one another, but maybe you got to do some stuff this afternoon and take advantage of the beautiful spring-like weather that we're starting to experience. I do want to give just a quick plug for Wednesday night, what's coming up. Uh, We will begin here in the auditorium. If you're part of the auditorium class, we will begin this yellow material here. If you've not picked one of these up, those are available in the rack in the foyer. Please do that uh, this evening before you leave. And I do want to encourage you, as I did uh, beginning last quarter when we started studying Colossians, Please just take the time. Don't leave those in the pews. Take those home with you and just work through those questions. In fact, you could do the questions for Lesson 1 probably in about five minutes. That's how easy those are. They're just straight from the text. But as we get into some of the later lessons, if you come across a question that you're eh, just not really 100% sure about, didn't really know what the author was going for when he wrote that question, you just send me a text message or you call me because... I am the author. I wrote all of this material. This makes it different from some of the previous materials that we've worked with. I know exactly what I was going for, and I tried to be as clear as possible, but if you have a question about that, you just let me know, and I'll try to let you know ahead of time. Those things will enhance our study together throughout the book of Ephesians over the next uh, few months. I'm looking forward to that. Let's talk, though, this evening about Deuteronomy chapter 7. I'm reading here in the first two verses, in Deuteronomy 7 and in verse 1. There the Bible says, this is Moses speaking to the Israelites preparing them for what's about to happen shortly, that they're going to enter into the promised land. And so he says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Did anybody gasp when we read this chapter as part of our Bible reading plan this past week? Did anybody gasp a little bit when we were reading it right now? What is this business? of God commanding the Israelites to utterly, that means everybody, utterly put to the sword men, women, and the children of these seven nations listed in verses 1 and 2. This is the kind of thing that I think at the very least it gives us pause. And in fact, if you were reading the Bible for the very first time, I think it would just stop you dead in your tracks. What's going on here? How in the world do we reconcile what we say about God, what we think about God, what we know about God, what we sing about God, being a God of love and kindness and compassion? How do we reconcile that with the wholesale slaughter of untold Thousands upon thousands of people. And let's just be clear that for the most part, in the main, Israel did follow through with this. 
And they killed all of those people at God's command. In fact, I was recently given a question for Q&A night about the walls of Jericho falling down. We like to study that story with our young kids. But an astute young person asked the question, well, what about the children when the walls came tumbling down? What about the children who lived in the city of Jericho? Were they devoted to destruction too? The answer to that is, yes. Yes, they were. But you know what? It's not just Christians and people of faith who get uncomfortable thinking about that. There are even, there are even people out in the world who are very uncomfortable with what verses like this says. Passages like Deuteronomy 7 verses 1 and 2 are a favorite stomping ground of atheists and non-believers who point to these accounts and they will question, what kind of God are you serving? What kind of God would authorize such massive bloodshed as this? Richard Dawkins is one of the most foremost critics of the Bible. He is an avowed atheist. He's wrote all kinds of books that are uh, published in, in mass quantities and they're purchased in mass quantities. He's one of those talking heads that you always see on the news and media when they're looking for an atheist to advance the atheist agenda. He said the following about God. He said the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it. Petty and unjust, vindictive, bloodthirsty, an ethnic cleanser, a racist, and a genocidal maniac. Boy, that's strong language, isn't it? But you know what? From Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, what would you say to argue against that? What would you give as a response to someone who says something like that? In fact, you may even know people... I know people, I know people personally who have said, I cannot worship a God like that. I cannot serve a God who would put to death thousands of people amongst that number would be children. I just can't do that. One writer put it this way. He said, God's image as a loving and benevolent deity seems to be called into question by these stories of seemingly cruel and vengeful behavior. What do we say about all of that? Is it true what Richard Dawkins said? Is God just a genocidal maniac? What do we say to people whenever they point to passages like Deuteronomy chapter 7 and they say, explain that to me. Talk about your God being a God of love and He wants to save everybody. Why don't you explain those verses to me? Maybe even more importantly, even more important than what we say in response to other people, what do we say to ourselves? What do we say to our own minds and hearts when we come across shocking passages like these and somehow try to reconcile that with the picture and the image of a loving and merciful God? Well, this evening, I do want to give attention to this very thorny issue. We happened upon this passage in our Bible reading this past week, but it's not going away. As we continue reading throughout the Old Testament, ah, this kind of stuff's just going to keep on popping up. Next week, we're going to get into the book of Joshua. And in Joshua, we're going to see these very verses play out in vivid detail as city after city is overtaken in the conquest of Canaan. In some ways, I really do think that this is one of the most difficult moral issues for us to understand. 
And it's made even more complicated and challenging when you try to explain and rationalize these things to others, particularly to non-believers. But as the people of God, we must come to terms with what it means for God to condemn entire nations of people to death. We must come to understand why that happened. We must be ready to give an answer, to give a defense for why we do not believe that the God of the Bible, the God whom we serve, is some kind of a genocidal monster. And particularly this evening, I hope our young people are going to pay attention here. Because sometimes young people have questions about this. In fact, the person who asked me the question about the walls of Jericho, obviously they were thinking about that. Sometimes it's hard for young people to, to comprehend, you know, why, why would God do these kinds of things? And in fact, this may cause you to have kind of a, a warped image of God if you don't get some answers here. This evening I want us to work through this together. Now to do that, I need to begin by just putting a, a big header right at the top. Put it over top of everything else that I'm going to say for the whole remainder of this study this evening. And that header is this. And that is that God is absolutely sovereign. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe and of all creation. And we are not. Now, in just a moment, I am going to offer to you Three scriptural explanations for God wiping out these Canaanite nations. But even as I do that tonight, I'm a little bit nervous about doing that. Because I do not want to give off the impression that God has to explain Himself to us. Hey Lord, we want some answers down here and you owe it to us. No, He doesn't. In Romans the ninth chapter, Paul talks there about the sovereignty of God. He talks there about the potter being in charge of the clay. And how the clay does not talk back to the potter and say, Hey, why did you do it this way? Why did you make me like this? Why did you do that? No. The potter doesn't answer to the clay. And that's something that needs to factor in here. We need to think about that. We need to keep that at the forefront of our minds. Whether we ever completely understand all of the workings and the doings and the the goings on of the Heavenly Father, we need to just come to grips with the fact That God's going to do what God is going to do. And there's nothing we can do about that. He has all power and authority and rule and dominion and control. He has absolute sovereignty. And that needs to be stated right here from the get-go. And so then, with that truth firmly planted in the forefront of our minds, I do believe that we are now ready to give a more careful examination of what the Scripture says Some big ideas. Actually, this evening I want to offer three big ideas that helps us in comprehending God's extermination of these entire nations of people. And that begins with this first big idea. And that is that passages like Deuteronomy chapter 7, what they are primarily about is they are about God's judgment on sin. If you were just going to look for some kind of a quick and ready answer as to why God wiped out entire nations of people, this is where you need to start. In fact, this is the most obvious answer to that question. In fact, if you're still there in Deuteronomy chapter 7, drop down in the chapter. Look in verses 9 and 10. In Deuteronomy 7 and in verse 9, the Lord says there, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him, and keep His commandments to a thousand generation. Notice this now, verse 10. And He repays to their face those who hate Him. And how does He do that? By destroying them. 
He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Now, sometimes when we talk about the destruction of the Canaanites, somehow in our mind we have developed this picture of these lovely little quiet and quaint Canaanite villages. And these people are just going about their business, just trying to be good people and doing good things. And they're just so peaceful and they're just so good-hearted. But what Deuteronomy 7 verses 9 and 10 affirms to us is that the Canaanites, they were not innocent people. These are people who hated God. These were, in fact, wicked. Really wicked. Terribly wicked people. So much so that God had announced judgment on them hundreds of years in advance. I'll show you that. Look in Genesis 15, please. In Genesis 15, we're going back several hundred years in time now. In Genesis 15, God's talking to Abraham here, the father of the Jewish nation. And he says in verse 16, he's telling Abraham, talking about future events. He says that when when your descendants, when they come back to inherit the promised land, in Galatians, excuse me, not Galatians, Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, he says that when they come back here in the fourth generation, they will come for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. I'm going to guess when God said that to Abraham, Abraham didn't really have any clue what God was talking about. But God knew what he was talking about. God was able to look down the stream of time that the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Why was the Canaanite people, why were they put to death? Because they were wicked. Iniquity. Because the wages of sin is death. And in a very real way, they reap the wages of their sin. This is, if you will, this is capital punishment of the highest order. And let's be clear. Those Canaanite nations, they were really wicked. Let me just give you maybe a thumbnail sketch of how wicked they were. They were grossly immoral. They were incredibly depraved. Archaeological evidence has been discovered to show that the Canaanite gods and the worship and the rites that went along with Canaanite worship, it centered on, and I'm quoting here, it centered on brutality and lust and perversion that had no moral character whatsoever. Canaanite worship included witchcraft, temple prostitution, the abuse of children, bestiality, and worst of all, child sacrifice. In fact, God actually makes mention of that in the book of Leviticus. Would you find Leviticus 18, please? In Leviticus chapter 18, God warned the Israelites up front not to follow in the practices of the Canaanites. And look at the specific practice that he mentions in Leviticus chapter 18. I'm reading here in verse 21. In Leviticus 18 verse 21, You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, a false god, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. That, that's what went on in the land of Canaan. That is what the Amalekites and the Jebusites and the Perizzites and the Hivites, etc., etc., that's what they did. They offered, it's hard for us to fathom this, they offered their own children in fiery sacrifices to idol gods. You know, we think back just a couple of generations ago in, in our world when the atrocities that were perpetrated by the Nazis during the Holocaust, when, the, when that news kind of broke and that information was discovered, There was just a call worldwide. Everyone was appalled at that. 
That we need to hunt those people down. If we see any of the people who are responsible for that atrocity, those people need to be caught, they need to be captured, and they need to be punished swiftly. This culture that we're reading about here in the Old Testament, this culture was given over to even worse kinds of behavior. We're talking about the Nazis being pretty awful. These people were worse. We're talking about inhumane behavior. And that is why God goes on to say, if you're still there in Leviticus chapter 18, drop down to verse 24. God says, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land, the land has become unclean. So that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. Think about that. The land can't even stand it anymore. These people have got to get off the land because they're polluting even the very earth itself. These people are so perverse and so wicked. In fact, in Deuteronomy, the 25th chapter, Moses actually talks about how the Amalekites, and he wants to remind the Israelites of the occasion where the Amalekites, they actually attacked the rear of the caravan of people that were proceeding toward the promised land. And do you know what kinds of people were in the rear of the caravan? The weak, the sick, the aged. Think about that. What kind of cruel people goes and masters a raid and attacks sick people, elderly people, people who can't even help themselves? Who does that kind of thing? I'll tell you who does it. Not good people. So I ask, what would we think? What would we think of a God who would allow those kinds of things to happen? Just kind of add all those things up that I've laid out here. What would we think of a God who allowed that kind of stuff to go on just completely unchecked and never did anything to stop it? We wouldn't think much of a God like that, would we? And so what we see being played out in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and what ends up happening throughout the book of Joshua is God stamping out Sin. That's what's going on here. And if you're thinking that somehow God is, you know, God's just really unfair doing it to these people. These aren't the Israelites He's doing this to. These aren't the people that He's communicated with on a daily basis through, through Moses and Aaron and all of these prophets and so forth. You know, it's just unfair for God to do that to those people. I will remind you that what we read about in Genesis chapter 15, all the way back there during the time of Abraham, God gave those people hundreds upon hundreds of years to repent. Gave them the opportunity to repent generation after generation after generation. And that is exactly why when we get to the book of Joshua, multiple times the Bible is going to say that the hearts of the people, they melted. And why? Because those Canaanite nations, they knew. They understood what was coming. They knew what their sins was going to reap in their lives. But instead of that driving them to repentance and serving God, they just continued on in their sin. And the result of that, according to Deuteronomy 7, 1 and 2, is going to be utter destruction. Now I believe, I believe that that right there, if we just stopped right there, that would be more than enough. That is sufficient to answer this question and what it is that we're concerned about, about God exterminating all of these people. Right there, that God judges sin. That's not to say that somehow God enjoyed doing that. Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 11 says that God takes no pleasure 
in the death of the wicked. God didn't derive any kind of pleasure from that. But God will not tolerate sin. So we think about that. And we're still uncomfortable with it. And maybe the reason that we're uncomfortable with it and just people today are uncomfortable with that is because this causes us to think about our own culture, the society and the nation in which we live, a society that is filled with so much violence, so much bloodshed, so much perversion, so much immorality, and we know, we know how God feels about all of that. God's been been through it before. And we know as well what God is capable of doing to an entire nation of people who rejects Him and rejects His Word. So I believe that instead of us you know, apologizing for God destroying the Canaanites, or instead of us you know, you know, kind of getting the mumbles whenever somebody asks us, how do you explain that? What we maybe ought to do is we ought to stand up and we ought to be firm enough to say, God ain't going to put up with this stuff. God doesn't tolerate sin. He judges sin. And that is particularly true here as we talk about these nations because God's holiness and God's purity is at stake here. Because a huge part of God's work and God's plan for Israel is that they would be holy and pure as well. Look with me in Deuteronomy chapter 20, please. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, Moses actually just spells it out. He tells the people of Israel why it is that those wicked nations have to be obliterated. Here's the why. I've already told you the what. Now let me tell you the why that needs to happen. Deuteronomy chapter 20, begin with me in verse 16. The Lord says through Moses, But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. About that, that's not just including all the people. That's talking about the animals too. You save alive nothing that breathes, verse 17, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, notice verse 18, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. You're the kind of person who likes to make notes in your Bible. Would you please underline that expression in verse 18? That they may not teach you to do according to their abominable practices. That's the why. That is a key element in this conversation. In fact, really these first two ideas, they really kind of work together. They work in concert with one another. The reason that God judged sin is because God is absolutely holy and pure. And His very nature and character demands that sin be punished. And since God is holy and pure, it should come as no surprise to us that God expects His people to be holy and pure. We must reflect that commitment to purity and holiness that our God models so perfectly. And this was so, so important for Israel. Because as God's chosen people, When they come into that land of Canaan, they will be used as the tool for announcing to the world the reality of the one true God of heaven. They will be used as the vehicle for the coming Messiah that will free all people from the slavery of sin. And as such, God calls upon those chosen people to sanctification. 
He calls upon them to separation. He calls upon them to be involved in holy living. And so then anything that God perceived as threatening that holiness, you know what God says about it? God says it must be removed. It has to be gotten out. You know, I think really what we're looking at here in Deuteronomy 20 and verse 18 is very much what a surgeon does for a living. When a surgeon finds a limb, somebody's got an arm, and it's just all set in and filled with gangrene, what has to happen? That arm has to come off. It has to be amputated. And why? Well, because if it doesn't, then it's just going to poison the whole body. Or think about cancer, a tumor. Why does a tumor need to be removed? Because it could infect the whole body. It could kill the whole body. And what Deuteronomy 28, 20 verse 18 is saying is that these people, these Canaanite nations, they had to be amputated. They had to be removed. Because holiness, holiness demands a separation from the world. In fact, did you pick that up if you read Deuteronomy 7 this past week? Go back there. Did you pick that up in Deuteronomy 7? Look in the next couple of verses. We read verses 1 and 2 earlier. Look at verses 3 and 4. In Deuteronomy 7 verse 3, he says, you shall not intermarry with them. When you come into that land, don't be marrying. Don't be partnering up with those folks. You should not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons. For they, they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. You know, somehow, when we talk about holiness and separation, I'm afraid that sometimes the first image that comes to our mind is like really extreme examples of people separating themselves. We think of like the Amish who have very, in very many ways, they've pulled themselves away from the rest of society and they're, they're living over there in their own corner of the world. Or you know, if, they, if they had their druthers, they'd probably live on an island all to themselves. Or maybe we think about monks in, the, you know, in some of the Eastern religions. And they go and they sequester themselves off into some monastery somewhere. And that's the idea of separation in our minds. But that's not really what separation and holiness is all about. These people, these Israelites that God is calling to holiness... These are just regular folks. These are just people like you and me. These are people who were farmers, people who were tradesmen, people who were shopkeepers, people who were uh, you know, blacksmiths and had other skills. And these are people who just lived very regular, normal kinds of lives. And they were not going to be pushed off into some far-off corner somewhere, off by themselves, away from the rest of humanity. No. They were going to live in that land that God had promised to them. They were going to live their everyday lives in that promised land. God knew. God knew that the temptation to become like the people of that land, the people who would occupy that land, God knew that that temptation would be so great that He had those people forcibly removed, exterminated, utterly destroyed. You know what all of that says to me? All of that says... It says something to me about just how serious God takes holiness. I'm afraid we don't, I, I don't talk about holiness enough. That's a big deal to God. Be ye holy, for I am holy. And we need to think about that. And you know, once again, maybe the reason that we get a little bit of a case of the squiggles and squirming a little bit as we address this issue is because all too often as Christians, We see our pagan and godless culture around us 
And we want to be like them. All too often we want to mirror what we see of the Canaanites who live in our world today. We want to talk like them. We want to look like them. We want to dress like them. We want to hang out with them. We want to be as much like them as we possibly can. We want to be entertained by Canaanite movies and TV shows. We want to read Canaanite books and magazines. And we just love everything about the godless culture in which we live today. I want to be clear. We are not under the Old Testament law. And that means that we are not, not authorized to forcibly execute and exterminate ungodly people. That's not the solution here. That's not even an option. But you know what these texts do remind us of? They remind us that the people of God, they are to be unspotted from the world. James 1 verse 27. That while we are in this world, we are not to be of this world. Passages like Deuteronomy 7 and some of these others that we've read, they just underline for us just how seriously God takes holiness and how He has always, from His first covenant people all the way to us today, His new covenant people, God expects us to be holy as well. Finally then this evening, I do need to say something about the innocent, because that's really, that's really the big elephant in the room here. Because probably up to this point, I'm going to assume that pretty much everybody in this building tonight, all of us here were probably thinking, yeah, okay, yep, number one, good, I got that, I get that. Number two, yep, get that, I understand that completely, that just fits with everything else that we see in Scripture. I got all of that. These were bad people who did bad things, and in reality they got what they deserved. But Josh, that was the adults. The adults were the bad people who did the bad things. What about the children here? Why did those children have to die? Well, I'll tell you, there's several important ideas that immediately come to my mind. First of all, I think we should say, just right out of the gate, that when those Canaanite children, when they died, those who died before reaching an age of accountability, those children most certainly would go to heaven. The death of children. That really is only problematic for people who are atheists. People who are only looking to this life and they have no thought or they have no hope of a life to come, of anything better after this life is over. For people of faith, when a child dies, that's sad. There's no doubt about it that's sad. But we have a calm assurance, don't we? We have an understanding, we have an assurance of God's promise that that child, a sinless child, when they leave the scenes of this life, They're going safe to be in the arms of Jesus. They're going to go and be with the Lord. Furthermore, these children, these Canaanite children that would have died, these children would have been spared from the horror of being a human sacrifice, of being burned in fire on the altar of some false god for some false purpose. I believe that, if you're looking for a silver lining, and I'm putting that in quotations, that is something that they were spared from. And on top of even all of that, they were also spared, they were also spared from growing up in that depraved and sin-sick culture where they would grow up to become probably what? To become a depraved, sin-sick, pagan, an abominable sinner who would then be accountable for a holy and just God. Now, I think all of those ideas Those are all legitimate points. And I wanted to put them up there. Those are things that need to be stressed. In fact, parents, 
you're talking with your kids about this, if they ask questions about this kind of thing, I really do think, as we talk about innocent children dying, I really think we want to stress that first one. We want to spend some time there. We want them to know and we want them to be absolutely certain that when a sinless child dies, they're going to be with the Lord. We take comfort in that. We ought to, we ought to rest easy about that. But I put all of those ideas together and combine that with the two points that we've already made. What all of this, I believe, is pointing us to is the understanding that sin affects more than just the person who commits the sin. You understand that? That is true and that has always been true. You know, you and I, we are not responsible, we are not accountable for the sin that Adam and Eve committed all the way back in the Garden of Eden. We are not going to have to answer for their sins on the Day of Judgment, but... But we do live in a fallen world, don't we? And as a result, we are still bearing some of the consequences of their bad choice so long ago. And what that says to me is that sin carries painful consequences even to the innocent. We understand about that, don't we? When a parent has an anger problem, always lashing out, children suffer. When a parent has an alcohol problem, Children suffer. When a parent maybe commits a crime so much so that they get thrown in jail, now that child doesn't have their father or maybe doesn't have their mother. Children suffer. We understand that, don't we? That sin hurts. Sin harms. Sin always brings pain, yes, on the person who commits the sin, but it brings pain even upon others. In fact, in some ways it has kind of a a ripple effect. Sometimes having a much far-reaching effect than we ever could have imagined or ever could have dreamed. I'll say again, in eternity, no one is going to have to answer for somebody else's sins. But every sin, my sins, they make this world a much worse place to have to live in. They make the world worse for everybody else around me, and that includes... That includes even innocent children. And so as we think here about the extermination of these Canaanites, think about the price that these children paid. These children paid the price, not spiritually, not eternally, but here on this earth, they paid the price for the wrongdoing, the abysmal failures of their godless parents. Sin brings about suffering. Part of the punishment for the Canaanites was that their kids, and this is probably the the part that troubles me the most, part of the punishment for the Canaanites was that they knew not only that they were going to die, but even more painfully, I believe, they had to live with the knowledge that their children were going to die as well. Mm. That's smart. That's painful. Think about how distraught you would be. Try your best to... Put yourself in the position of a Canaanite living here in Old Testament times. Think about how distraught you would be when you finally hear a word that those Israelites, they're making their way into the land. They're marching their way through city after city after city. And you start to hear news about what's going on in all of those cities. You start hearing about how fortified city after fortified city, one right after the other, they all come crumbling down and everybody is being destroyed. Hey, did you hear? Did you hear about Jericho? Jericho, the walls came tumbling down. 
Everybody was taken. Everybody was destroyed. Did you hear about what happened at Hazor? Did you hear about what happened at Ai? Have you heard? The land is just overrun with these Israelites. What's going to happen when they come here? Tell you what's going to happen when they come here. Everybody is going to die. That's what's going to happen. Now you put yourself in that place. With what terror? With what absolute terror and fear and shock you must anticipate as you think about the judgment of the Lord. The terror that you would have felt, not only for yourself, but think about how that terror would be multiplied with the realization that my children, they are going to suffer because of what I have done. What an absolutely dreadful thought to have to be burdened with. You know, I don't want to think about having to receive the consequences for my own sin. But then to have to imagine that not only have I brought pain and misery and suffering and death on myself, but I have also brought those same consequences upon my child? That's almost too much to bear. But in many ways, I thought about this. In many ways, that is a very fitting punishment for a Canaanite society that had despised the sacred gift of human life, particularly the life of a child. That is a fitting punishment for a people who would offer their children on the altars of false idols and false gods. And once again, as has been the case with all three of those points, once again, we get a little squirmy. We fidget just a little bit. Because we realize that we live in a society that for the past 40 years in particular has shed so much innocent blood on the altar of abortion, we wonder ourselves, how long is God going to put up with this? How much longer do you think God is going to put up with what's going on in the United States of America? And is it possible that we, even as the people of God, people who are trying to do what's right, we're not completely innocent like a child, but we're trying to live godly. Is it possible that even we will end up being casualties in this? In some way, that we will end up reaping some painful earthly consequences. Not eternal, but some painful earthly consequences because of the sins that are going on by the ungodly in the culture in which we live. Those are hard thoughts to think about. And I want to just say, as I wrap up here, all of this, all of this is very, very hard. I know that tonight I have not answered everything about everything. I'm pretty sure I'm going to have follow-up questions. What about this and what about that? And I realize that even what I have offered to you this evening, it's not going to be the kind of thing that you're going to say, oh, yes, I, I see it now. Yeah, I, I get that. I get that. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Okay, that all makes sense. That's great. Let's go. Hey, Brother Rob, why don't you get up and let us and sing and be happy. Let's sing that song now. No. We're not singing, singing, be happy. Because what we just read in Deuteronomy 7 and in all those accompanying passages, this is dark, this is sober, this is somber. But I want you to notice something in all of this. I want you to notice that as uncomfortable as we are with all of this, God doesn't seem to be. God does not hide these details from us. God does not put this information over here in some obscure part of the Bible like you know, tucked away back there in the book of Zephaniah or you know, some book of the Bible nobody's even looking at. No, God unashamedly 
without any embarrassment at all. God says, this is what I did to these nations of people who hated me. God's not uncomfortable with that. And it seems to me then that what that would tell us is that even though we do have some difficult questions about all of this, surely we can learn from this, can't we? Haven't we learned some things about ourselves and about God's expectations for us as His people today? And I think we can come to a better understanding now of who God is. That He is a God who would not only send His Son to die for us, the greatest gesture of love and mercy ever known, but our God as well. He would order even capital punishment for perverse and wicked people who defied Him and defied His holiness. Those are sobering lessons to have to learn. But it is a reality that we as the people of God must come to understand today. We extend the invitation of the Lord. And I find it appropriate to extend the invitation with what Paul writes in Romans 11 and verse 22. Paul says there, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. I I, I like talking about the kindness of God. I like talking about the love of God. And certainly as we think about Jesus dying on the cross, making possible a way for us to be saved, man, I want to just dwell on that and think about the kindness and the love of God just all day long. But I can't do that to the neglect of this over here. Note then the severity of God. One of these days we're all going to stand before the Lord in judgment. And it seems pretty clear as we've read and studied this evening seems pretty clear as if the fate of the Canaanite people, the adults, their fate is sealed. We know what's going to happen to them. And they're going to have to face in just an even more abundant way the severity of God. They face God's severity already and they will face it even more in eternity. i tell you this, I am scared for anybody, but particularly anybody in this room tonight, who finds themselves in that group. Who finds themselves tonight in that group of people who would be on the receiving end of God's severe anger and wrath. God cannot abide sin. He must punish sin. But the good news of the Gospel is is that Jesus came here in order to make possible a way for us to be forgiven of our sins. Have you been forgiven of your sins? If not, tonight is the night to do that. There's no reason to delay. There's no reason to put that off. The Canaanites, they were given opportunity after opportunity, hundreds after hundreds of years, but their hearts became more and more hard as time went on. Don't allow that to happen to you. You know what you need to do. You know that you need to confess your faith in Jesus Christ. You know you need to repent of your sins. You know you need to be baptized for the remission of your sins. Why would you put that off? Why would you delay? Now's the time to do something about that. Now is the time to get right with God. Let's do it. Let's do it as we stand and as we sing.